0: If you have your Bibles, can you please turn with me to Matthew 24? Matthew 24. um, We're going to do verses 1 through 13. So again, just thank you so much for coming. For those of you who are new or forgotten, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, which is one of four accounts of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And one of Matthew's main goals is to present Jesus as the Jewish Messiah or King that the people have been hoping for. We are in Passion Week, which is the last week of Jesus's life on earth. Last week, we saw that Jesus go on the offensive against the religious leaders By pronouncing seven woes or judgments against them for their self-serving nature and their hypocrisy, ending with a judgment against Jerusalem itself. And we're going to pick up from there. So Matthew 24, 1 through 13. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be torn down. And he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So it's a pretty intense passion, but before we dig in, I want to I, I want to ask: Has anybody watching the Olympics? Anybody watching the Olympics? They're playing pretty regularly, and there's lots of great sports. I love the gymnastics. I love the um, swimming. Actually, one of my favorite is the marathon uh, because of the endurance it takes. These guys can—I don't know how they're able to run 26 miles in under two hours, um, and just it's just a slog. And uh, myself. Several years ago, uh, a long time ago, in a much stronger and thinner Chris Freeman, I trained and performed the Dubai Marathon with a friend of mine, and I was nothing like these guys in the Olympics, of course. My goal, my point was to just finish the marathon, and I did. Um, It took me about five hours, but I did not give up. I did not quit, and it was such a hard marathon because the way the Dubai Marathon is designed is that you actually go past, you go, you make a loop and you go past where the finish line is. You have to run eight more miles before you actually finish. It's like two big loops and you get to see where the finish line is, but you're so far away. uh, It really can be disheartening. And I think marathons are a great analogy to the Christian faith because the main idea with our faith and what Jesus is talking about is not to give up. It's not to quit, which is why I titled my sermon, Spiritual Endurance to the End. And while we have moments of sprinting for Jesus or want to rank high on his chart, Jesus's main rewards are just to finish this life in faithfulness. And my first point from this passage is this, that we are to trust and be faithful servants of Jesus alone in spite of a shifting religious landscape. If you can imagine being in the shoes of the disciples, you can imagine the intense air after the fiery judgments against the scribes and Pharisees. It must have been a very quiet place in the temple while Jesus was attacking them. If you remember, the increased hostility started in chapter 21 during a second day in Jerusalem. The first day he comes in on a donkey with people praising and worshiping him, throws out the traitors in the temple and tells the religious leaders that he deserves the praise of the people, which would have been infuriating and blasphemy if it was not true. Then Jesus gives several parables against the elders and the scribes and the Pharisees. The first is about the two sons saying that the prostitutes and tax collectors will enter the kingdom before the religious leaders. The second parable about the tenants killing the messengers and the son of the vineyard and the slaughtering of those people was to show that they will be removed as the keepers of the kingdom of God. And the third parable about the wedding feast of the son of the king portraying the scribes and Pharisees as those who rejected the feast and were destroyed by the king. And then Jesus also diffuses questions about paying taxes, about the resurrection, and what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus goes on the offensive by asking about who the Messiah is, being greater than David, referring to himself. And they stopped asking questions at that point because he is unstoppable. However, Jesus was not finished. and He spends the entire next chapter pronouncing judgments against the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders, specifically tearing down their practices and calling them unclean dead bones and brood of vipers. Finally, he pronounces judgment against Jerusalem itself, saying that the city itself will no longer participate in the kingdom of God until it acknowledges Jesus as the Messiah. So as a disciple, what would you do? Pretty intense moments. So this is all really happening fast for them. And I'm sure it's disturbing and uncomfortable hearing Jesus not only attack the religious leaders, but Jerusalem itself. Of course, Jesus is telling the truth, but it it would still be hurtful. And confusing to hear. These are the people who followed these religious leaders for generations. um, And Jerusalem no longer being worthy of the kingdom of God. So, what their strategy is, is to change the subject, which I've done with my in laws when my mom and dad are fighting. I change the subject, ask about the weather or the football game. And in the disciples' case, they start talking about the temple as they're leaving. And, of course, the temple was impressive during the days of Jesus and the disciples. It was built by Herod in 37 BC and completed around 84. So not only was it relatively new what the disciples were looking at, but it was one of the largest construction projects in the world during this time. And many, many times larger than the temple built by the Old Testament uh, leader Zerubbabel after the Babylonian captivity in the Old Testament. And I've been to Jerusalem a few times myself and got to see the remaining part of the wall and excavation beneath the ground. And one of the stones is over 500 tons. That would be difficult to move in today's time. It'd be hard to move a stone of that size. And they do not know even today, how did they get that there? How did Herod and his crew get that stone into this place? So the point is that the temple was impressive. Now while they hoped, <coughs> excuse me, that this change of subject would end the bad news, I did not work. Um, while something as great as the temple suggests its permanence, Jesus says the opposite. He says that these stones, like the ones I described, will be thrown down. And this must have completely shocked and stunned the disciples. And Jesus was absolutely right in AD 70, during the lifetimes of most of the remaining disciples, the city of Jerusalem was attacked and destroyed by the Roman general Titus. And he was commanded to completely burn the inside and destroy it. And it probably took them years to throw down these stones because they're supposed to be completely dismantled. So if you think about it, first, Jesus deposes the chief priests, elders, scribes, Sadducees, and Pharisees. These were major building blocks of the Jewish faith and were the keepers and the enforcers of the Jewish code. So while it's easy to see them for us today as the bad guys, we need to remember that this was a system that has been in place for generations and continues to this day among Jews. Therefore, even though it feels good to see Jesus rightly condemn the Pharisees, it still must have been hard and challenging for the disciples to hear this and the crowds to hear this. Second, he attacked Jerusalem, the sacred city. The Jewish religion has had Jerusalem at the center of its worship since the time of David. So for Jesus to say that this place would be desolate until the praise of Jesus must have also been disorienting for them. Where would they worship if not the city of their forefathers? Finally, Jesus also says that the temple itself would be destroyed. The disciples probably at the time could not even understand what their religion would be like without the temple, which is where all the sacrifices and the main religious teaching is based. Without the temple, how would they worship God, make sacrifices, and see God's glory? It's similar to living in Kuwait so long. You know, I watch the TV TV channels of them walking around Mecca, um, the faithful people, and many people going on Hajj and coming back and shaved. It would be like if if Mecca and the Kaaba and those places were destroyed, how would Islam function? It's almost a similar sort of idea. So what is Jesus trying to teach them? He's trying to teach them to let go of these systems that they had been entrenched in in their entire lives. Jesus is the only true God and the only teacher, instructor, and leader that we need, as he says last chapter. we don't ultimately depend on pastors elders other spiritual leaders but ultimately depend on jesus as the only perfect leader we also worship jesus not in any particular place not exclusively in a city in a building or in a church but we worship him wherever we are because we are the temple of god we also don't need a specific place Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. We don't need a temple or church to worship him because he is, the, he is the sacrifice that we need. So my question in my application is, what are you holding on to that's taking the place of Jesus, the Messiah? We have seen this year that God has taken some things from us, right? We still can't be in a physical building, but we can still worship God. You know, we went from having almost 200 people in a hotel to an online setting of a handful of people. That's a pretty radical change and a shift for for those of us who have been around. Um, And yeah, that's that's hard to see. And I don't know what the future of CIC will be. I hope it reopens and things change, but I don't know that. And that's okay because I need to focus more on Jesus, less on a specific religious gathering or a church or my own rules. I don't know the spiritual landscape of Kuwait after COVID-19, but I need to not give up, which is Jesus's point, and trust him in spite of not, not knowing what will happen with the future of the church in Kuwait or the future of the church in the world. This also can include things like worship styles, liturgy, preaching styles, small groups, Sunday lunches, praying before our meals. What are we making an idol of instead of Jesus? Of course, I'm not saying church is bad. It's necessary to go to church, have deep relationships with others connected to Christ and many of the other systems that exist. The question we need to ask ourselves, though, is have they become the focus of our worship rather than Jesus? And again, it's okay to have preferences, but these things shouldn't be our focus. So Jesus wants us to be faithful to him and not to any religious system in spite of how much the religious systems or structures change. My second point is that we need to be faithful to Jesus in spite of current events and false teachers. Excuse me. As they left the temple and made their way back to the Mount of Olives, the disciples obviously have some important questions. Clearly, this prediction of the condemnation of the religious leaders, Jerusalem and the temple, got their attention. In the minds of the disciples, they want to know when these things will happen. And when Jesus will come back in the end of time. And we can see that they're aware and are understanding more because of their time with Jesus. Like many Jews in Jesus' time thought, as well as many Jews today, that the coming of the king was the end. But Jesus' time with the disciples made it clear, at least to them, that Jesus' life and ministry was at least not going to close the end of the world immediately. Jesus was with them. So it seems almost like a strange question they would be asking about his coming. However, they must have known that his coming on earth would be followed by a second coming in power to do all the Old Testament predicted about his destroying evil and setting up an everlasting kingdom and being with God forever. So Jesus responds with telling the disciples not to be led astray and be faithful to him. He says there will be others who have said they are the Messiah or king and many will be led astray by this and it's important to see that around the time of jesus there were other people who claimed to be god's anointed king or christ in fact many scholars say that there was a messianic fervor or a, a desire for this because the people were suffering under roman occupation and oppression so people were hungry for some sort of change and people were looking for some sort of messiah or savior and of course, today, that is, they did not stop after Jesus' lifetime. In fact, there have been myriads of people until now who have claimed this title of king or Jesus or God. And if you think back during after Jesus' ascension, there probably was this kind of vacuum with the disciples, and I'm sure people were rushing in to fill it, this idea of a savior. So while it might, it may be easy to laugh off most of the people as crazy The people who claim to be Jesus. We need to still be on guard. Clearly, many of these people had or have followers, which can number in millions if you count people like Muhammad and Joseph Smith. Also, what if somebody claimed to be the Messiah who could do miracles? That would certainly cause me to be questioned a little more carefully. And I've seen, I've been in Quake for quite a while, and I've seen Christians turn and shipwreck their faith and change to other religions. Jesus is saying that there is no Messiah beside himself, no matter what people claim or do, and we need to be faithful to him. And this is as true today as it was then. We also need to be aware that in our own day, there's this other idea that all roads lead to the same God, downplaying the idea of Jesus as Messiah, and that he is just one of many paths to heaven. Which is a similar false idea, saying that all religions and their religious leaders are equal to the Messiah Jesus. This is wrong. And he goes further. He says that the end is not tied up in difficult circumstances. He says there will be wars, conflicts, famines, earthquakes, and rumors. Of course, with the upcoming destruction of the temple and the sacking of Jerusalem in 80-70, that could easily have been assigned to the disciples that this is it. This is the end. We're done. Jesus is coming back. And of course, there were several terrible, inept emperors since Nero who caused a weakening and a collapse of the Roman Empire, which could also cause fear and uh, wanting this to all go away with the end of time. And this is as familiar today as it was for them. There are still all these things happening on the world stage with plenty of starvation, conflict around the world, and now a global pandemic. Many have wrongly claimed the end of the world or Jesus' second coming based on these facts. Even many Christians see that we are right at the end with all the evil we see. You know, we see it all around us. And I've heard many Christians, well-meaning people also predicting it's going to happen very soon. And it could happen very soon, but it could still be another 500 or 1,000 years because before Jesus comes back. And if we re- and remember that Jesus, if it survived and outlasted the Roman Empire, it could easily outlast the US, Europe, and other world powers that we think are permanent. And Jesus explicitly says that these things are not yet the end, and these things are the beginning of the birth pains. So while we should be looking for his return, we need to be careful to not equate current events with Jesus's return, things can look bleak and terrible, and it can feel like the world is coming to an end. Living in COVID-19, the the entire world has gone through upheavals and economic disaster, tragedy, but I don't know if that that means that's the end. We've seen all, I've seen many terrible things in my lifetime, famines, war, death. I saw 9-11 happen. You would think that would be the, the end of it, and those things are evil, and we should mourn them. But we should also be careful not to equate these things with the end of the world. As Jesus says, this is the only beginning of the end. So don't give up. If the Lord delays his coming, we should not give up or quit because of our circumstances, both personal and global. We need to remain faithful to him and continue to love and spend time with him, no matter how busy or stressed we are. One practical application is I try to spend less, this might make me sound ignorant, but I try to spend less time on the news. I find that news, especially today with COVID and American politics, to be a, a huge cause of stress and despair. They make me think that the world is going to end and it makes me feel helpless. Because of this happening, all this happening this year, I've kind of cut it out of my life. I know that I can't change the circumstances of my world and even of my own life, but if I spend time praying for God's kingdom to come and for my own faithfulness to Jesus, I have found that I'm not only happier, but I know that Jesus is the one who can change things. I need to trust in him. So if if the news is big enough, I will find out about it anyway. So we need to be faithful to Jesus and not give up in the midst of shifting sacred structures in spite of false prophets and external circumstances. And my final point is this. We should be faithful to Jesus and not give up, even if there is personal danger and death. Jesus then turns up the heat by moving from events on the global stage to their own personal death and hatred. It's one thing to see the world out there falling to pieces, but it's one—it's much more difficult when being a Christian and being faithful to Jesus begins to cost us something or maybe even everything. And we know that this is true of the original disciples. By the time Matthew wrote the gospel, there was already plenty of tribulation from the Jewish world and increasing persecution from the Roman government. If you look at the book of Acts, you see that most of the persecution experienced by Paul and the other early disciples comes from Jews because they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. However, that's not the only people who begin to persecute them. During the reign of Nero, Nero and subsequent emperors, after the destruction of the temple, the Roman government began to imprison, torture, and kill Christians and use them as a scapegoat for all the problems of the empire. We also know from church tradition that every one of the original apostles of Jesus were martyred except for John, who was to an, banished to an uninhabited island. He also says that many others, because of this difficulty in which Christians had to suffer <coughs> and suffer today, uh, they will continue. people will continue to fall away and even betray one another. Like I said before, we see this in our own time of people who are Christians, turning to other faiths or atheism and betraying and attacking Christians. Jesus also says that there will not only be false messiahs, but also false prophets. This sounds bleak, and there have been many false prophets leading to new and false religions who have led people away from the gospel. He continues to say that just like wars and global events getting worse, there will also be an increase in anarchy, which will cause people to lose hope in Jesus. And I can feel this way. Life has been challenging these last two years with the church not meeting, COVID-19, teaching online being stranded from my family for part of the year, and I've barely suffered at all compared to many. The transition, the temptation for all of us is to stop caring, which leads to a lack of care about Jesus and the faith. But however, Jesus says that the one who finishes the race will be saved. While the disciples asked about a second coming in the end, Jesus redirects them to make sure that they are aware that it takes endurance to be saved. And this is the end goal in hope, right? We want to be with Jesus and live forever. We want to be in a place where there is no more darkness. There is no more death. There are no more tears. There is no more pain. A place that we live forever and we are strong and we love God And all our desires. We can fulfill them because we're not bogged down by sin and anchors in our lives and selfish needs and, and legitimate needs. That's our goal. This is our hope. So we need a hope in this. That's how we w- want to be saved. And I, of course, I have not suffered much or been persecuted for my faith outside maybe a handful of snide remarks or some issues with the boss at work, but it could easily become more intense for me or for all of us. How do we endure danger and loss as believers and still be faithful? I think one way is to look back At past and present believers who have suffered. It says in Hebrews 12 that since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So there have been believers throughout history who have suffered greatly (coughs) and endured, and now they are with Jesus in glory. They endured, and they were people not different from us. They were not superheroes, but were ordinary believers with extraordinary faith. Reading about or listening to people like Athanasius, Hudson Taylor, Adoniram Judson, and many others. At the end, I'll send a link with a great list of podcasts that have biographies of great Christian saints and to listen to, to encourage you in your faith. And there, of course, there are Christians today who are truly suffering and pay a steep price for the faith in places like North Korea, Yemen, India, Nigeria, that we not only should continue to pray for, but also to encourage us that if suffering can happen to them and they endure, then we also can endure. In conclusion, Jesus encourages and warns us to be faithful to Him alone in spite of shifting religious sands, in spite of present circumstances, and in spite of personal danger. Like I said at the beginning, the Christian life is like a marathon. It takes endurance. And with my marathon, one other thing that helped me as I trained and ran the marathon was my close friend running it with me. Many times I went, during the training and the performance, I didn't want to go out. I didn't want to waste my Saturdays and train, but and my bo- during the actual marathon, my body was hurting, and I was spent probably about like 10 miles into it. However, my friend, be- being together, running the race, and doing the practices, we were both able to finish, and in the same way, I want to encourage you that as we are in a marathon of following Jesus, we can't and shouldn't do it alone. Make sure you have other brothers and sisters who are to, can encourage you as we follow Jesus and endure until the end. If you don't have anybody, please speak to me or we'll find a partner for you. And I would love to talk because a spiritual brother is a powerful ally in endure, the endurance of the race that Jesus wants us to finish. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this time. I thank you for my friends that as things have changed in our religious landscape as there are false teachers and there is global events that are rough and there could be personal danger. I pray that you'd give us all the strength to endure. Give us all the power to continue running the race for you, Jesus, because we love you. And we just ask for this in your great name, King Jesus. Amen.